0: Welcome to this special edition of The Spectator Podcast. I'm Fraser Nelson, editor of The Spectator, and I've been a fairly frequent Uber user over the years. Uber came to Britain about 10 years ago, transformed the way that certainly Londoners and those in other cities came to view taxis. All of a sudden, in your pocket, you could get a car two or three minutes away for a third of the price of a black cab. And to the Tories, this wasn't just about Uber. This was about a whole new way of working, a whole new way of availing yourself of services, of taking on vested interests and putting consumers first. Since then, a lot has changed. Uber has ended up being regulated and they are now giving their drivers holiday pay amongst other benefits. They've had lots more competitors. We've had Bolt and we've had Captain and other such apps. And Uber, of course, is now a rather different beast to the one we saw 10 years ago. It is, in many ways, emblematic of the gig economy the way in which people could decide to pick up an app and work two or three hours if they want to and then not in exchange for full pay. But were those people being exploited? Should they be given holiday pay? And similarly, if you regulate it too much, are you going to end up with a lack of drivers and a very different service? So this is a podcast about Uber, sponsored by Uber, and we're going to be talking to Uber's general manager about the challenges facing his company and the gig economy in general. But first of all, I'm delighted to be joined by an Uber driver. Her name is Casey, and she is here to tell us a little bit more about what it feels like from her position in the driver's seat. So Casey, thanks very much for joining me on this Spectator podcast. First question, when did you become an Uber driver and why did you decide to start?
1: I started driving Uber in 2016. I left my full-time job in 2013 to create my own cake business. And the first three years of trying to make that business work were really, really tough. I'd never had to make my own money before. I'd always been employed and uh, I kind of burned through my savings and, uh, you know, weren't selling as many cakes as I needed to that I had to start taking on other jobs to keep me going. And I took on the job as a, as a pollster. I took on a job in teaching people how to make cakes at a local college. I took on a job as a warehouse operative. And what I found was whilst I was able to find other work, I, I really needed to be able to focus on my cake business. That's the reason why I changed my whole life. And Every time I needed to make a cake when an order finally came in, I then had to negotiate with the boss to get the time off to make the cake. And it wasn't always working in my favor. So I really needed something that was super flexible. And I started hearing adverts for Uber drivers. They were really heavily looking for people at that time. So it it got into my head and I started thinking, yeah, I like driving. You know, what about, you know, being a taxi driver, as it were, I'd never thought about it before, but I felt that the Uber model presented a sense of security that minicab driving, you know, didn't. That's why it had never really occurred to me before that it was something that I would feel comfortable doing. But I was really attracted to the flexibility, the fact that I could you know, work when I wanted to and then switch off when I didn't so I could focus on my cakes was really, really important to me. And that's why I decided to pick up the keys and get going.
0: And can you give me an idea of how much you're paid after Uber's commission, et cetera? What does it work out as, roughly speaking, per hour?
1: The idea is that you receive at least the minimum wage per hour, yeah.
0: Right. But I read somewhere that the, uh, the actual average is closer to £30 an hour. Is that right or is it a bit lower? I don't know. how It depends how much Uber, Uber driving you do. I'm just trying to get a feel for how it compares financially to the work that you were doing previously, you know, working in retail. You know, those jobs will pay a little bit of a minimum wage, but not that much more. And I'm trying to work at how much Uber driving would compare to the other sort of ad hoc work which is available on the economy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I was working in retail, at the warehouse I was clearing was about eight pound 80 something an hour and I would work full and it was a full-time full-time hours overnight and by the end of the month I'd clear maybe 1200 pounds or so so the idea comparing that to when I was driving uber I'd clear about 25 pound an hour before expenses what significant difference, yeah,
0: right. But, but before somebody who was driving, who can read a map, etc., it doesn't. It didn't take you months and months of sort of a training process because to be a black cab driver, you need to go through a lot of time and money. And for a lot of people, the financial cost of that training is quite prohibitive. Becoming an Uber driver for you was was more straightforward. Was it was a matter of weeks or months before you applied to when you got the the license.
1: Yeah, the actual process of being able to become an Uber driver really is hours. What you're waiting for is for the bureaucratic process to kick in. So the paperwork mm. to go through, and that that took about three months to be able to get signed up by Transport for London as a driver. But the actual process of becoming an Uber driver really is just a matter of hours. You know, it doesn't compare to those persons who take the knowledge. And I understand the number of people who do take the knowledge actually sign up as Uber drivers so they can learn the roads whilst they're doing their examinations. Like I say, with, with Uber, you, you know, once you've got your, your license from the operators to be able to be a private hire driver, you're on the road in a the, in the matter of really just a few, a few hours to a few days.
0: Well, when you started, of course, Uber was really the only kind of game in town. But now there's a lot of drivers like you who will have Bolt as well as Uber or another driver. Is that something that you do? Do you flit between companies like Uber and Bolt?
1: I do, actually. I do private hire driving with other companies as well as Uber. In terms of ride hailing using the apps like Bolt, like Ola, Free Now, Captain, when it was around, I actually tried all of them Mm -hmm. and decided to stick with Uber in the end because I found that some drivers would like to spend a lot of time switching between the apps. You know, you're trying to chase the jobs. You want to be available to any job from any app in any area. And actually, all the jumping around meant that I was losing out on work rather than gaining more work. And so I found in the end that I would just have one private hire company that I would drive for on one ride hailing app that I would drive for. And that was Uber. Right.
0: And how long do you see yourself staying with Uber for? I mean, did you see this as a, a sort of thing you do for a few months when you first started? I mean, you've been doing it for, for quite a while. I imagine you must be one of the longest serving Uber drivers.
1: I don't think I'm one of the longest serving Uber drivers. No, I've not been there since the beginning. I remember I first used Uber as a passenger um, when it came to Britain back in 2012. So there's definitely drivers who've been around for longer than myself. And certainly when I started driving, I would never have imagined that I would be able to say, oh, I've been driving for six years. And actually, when I speak to drivers in the game, I don't think any driver thinks they're going to be driving for a long time. Everybody sort of says, oh, I was going to start driving just a few months and it's been 34 years. (laughs) It's the kind of job that you don't expect to be in for a long period of time, but there's very few jobs that can compare in terms of their ability to give you such control and flexibility and good earning that it's very addictive.
0: And there's more benefits now, aren't there as well? You get holiday pay and stuff like that.
1: Exactly. So, you know, the benefits do help to make things a lot easier. I'm in the, what I describe as a enviable position where I'm just looking after me. I'm not looking after myself and a partner and a family. So I, I really can't speak to how persons who are who are raising a family and supporting a family, supporting a household find their experience. But for me, Uber has been you know, a fantastic partner in my finances, you know, struggling, building my own business, Uber enabled me to you know, get my finances back on track, sort out my credit rating get myself back into my own place because I had to move in with family to keep myself going. So for me, I found it very revolutionary in being able to get my life back to a place where I felt that I had options again. And what happened to the bakery? So I ran the business for nearly 10 years. I wrapped it up just in March of this year. Like I say, you know, being able to drive Uber, drive private hire, enabled me to really get my finances back on track so financially I found myself being very flush when it came to the business no I just decided that I'd had my time you know building my cake business it just came to a natural end for me it was a fantastic experience and in fact Uber was a great partner for me as well you know I was very fortunate enough to be able to win a year's worth of kitchen space for example that was supported by Uber in a campaign called Empowering Journeys in collaboration with Enterprise Nation myself and eight other businesses Uber supported for a year to you know help their food businesses to grow and I had other really fantastic opportunities as well during my journey with my cake business but I just decided yeah I've had enough of that so other opportunities have made their way to me so I'm exploring those now
0: Casey, great to talk to you and thanks so much for making the time today. Now, as well as Casey, we're joined by a panel of people who spend their lives looking at the gig economy and its impact on work. We've got Robert Colbell, my former boss of The Telegraph, now he runs the centre-right think tank the Centre for Policy Studies. Kirsty Innes, who's the Head of Digital Government at the Tony Blair Institute. And Andrew Brem, who's General Manager of Uber in the UK. Andrew, let's go to you first. Can you give us an overview? Your company is almost 10 years old now. You've been with it for, well, a far shorter amount of time. But it's changed rather a lot since it first rolled onto London
2: streets. Well, I'd like to think that it's kind of getting ubiquitous, partly geographically. So, you know, about half of the 85,000 people who are driving through are driving out of London. It's also, of course, not just about Cars anymore. It's about boats. It's about our partnership with uh, micro mobility. It's about getting a train, getting a coach on Uber. It's really it's supposed to be go anywhere. But I guess from a gig economy point of view, the core of it is the Uber cars with the Uber right. drivers driving them. And I think you know that's part of a huge movement which gives individuals freedom about you know when, where, and how they work. And it's it's for me it's right across the economy. It's not just not just driving vehicles. Well, that's probably one of the sectors that's grown fastest, I think.
0: Your business model has been rather tumultuous. Uber is a company which is almost defined by its court cases. It's very existence. When, I remember when Uber first came along, the black cabs were up in protest about it. And certain conservatives saw in this a great sort of liberation. Here you've got a cabal-busting innovation, not only allowing consumers the ability to get home at night safely and more cheaply, but allowing drivers to come through. If you look at the demographics of Uber drivers, very different to the demographics of black cab drivers. So it seems to be a certain aspect of of liberation, if you're looking at this from the view of a centre-right liberal. If you're looking at this from the view of somebody on the left, you see the undermining of workers' rights And it's been something after various court battles, including the
2: Supreme Court in the UK, you're now offering a very different deal to your drivers, aren't you? Yeah. So I think the reality is in the UK, like in many countries, regulation hasn't solved for the gig economy. And so regulation is is catching up with it. And different countries are making different decisions about what's the right thing in terms of, I guess, the balance between individual right to choose exactly when and how they work and and some sense of perhaps at the end of the day protection for people who are working. I think that's the kind of the big picture social thing that's, that's going on. In the UK with drivers specifically and actually Uber drivers specifically they are designated workers which means they you know they get holiday pay, they get a pension, they are guaranteed the national living wage but they do have absolute choice about you know when and where they drive.
0: So Kirsty Innes you've looked at a lot of this from the perspective of the gig economy worker do they have it better now than they did a few years ago?
3: I think they probably do but I still think there's a lot to happen for regulation but also the wider policy on skills education competition to catch up with the fact that work no longer looks anything like it did 10 years ago.
0: Right, but for how many people, when the gig economy first came along, it was, seemed to be a side. I mean, I used to have, a, when I took an Uber, I always used to speak to the drivers to ask them where they came from, what they did before. And you know, the stories were amazing. I spoke to one guy who is a who is an Afghan who'd fled the Taliban, and he'd come here as a refugee driving an Uber. There was another guy who was a London bus driver who had quit his his safe job with a pension, etc., to have a more comfortable job driving a taxi. But they seem to me to be at the fringes of the economy rather than the main. So, what proportion of workers now would you say are, are gig economy workers?
3: It depends how you define gig economy, of course, Mm. and that's a phrase that's so broad that it's almost not that helpful to use because there are people who are working in what we call non-traditional employment that has nothing to do with the digital economy. So working through an agency or a zero-hours contract, that might be non-traditional employment, and we think that's about five and a half million people in the UK. But the proportion of those who work through a digital platform like Uber might be much smaller than that. And obviously there are issues advantages and challenges for both those populations that might be the same or that might be specific to the fact that it's a digital platform that is really different to any way of finding work that we've experienced before.
0: Robert, when um, Uber first came on the scene, it was basically seemed to be a proxy almost for all the gig economy. Yes, you had Deliveroo, you had other sort of companies, but Uber was the lightning rod for people who saw an Uber an attempt to undermine the workers' rights model built up over generations of trade union work, etc. Now, that's one way of seeing it. The other way of seeing it is that it offered huge freedom to people. Who, of course, you know, nobody's forcing anybody to become an Uber driver. You do it if it was better than your previous status quo. Do you think that the gig economy companies have steadily been losing a battle, that they've entered as disruptors, but their ability to disrupt has been blunted simply because of more regulation?
4: I think that's true. I think when it, when all this started off, I remember the sort of sense of excitement when first Uber and then all these other services came around. This sort of this intense sense of jealousy that you get from people who weren't uh, who were in cities which they hadn't rolled out to you yet, and this sort of you know this idea. Well, no, you can you can push a button and people bring food to your door. You know, it's insane. I mean, and you know this was captured obviously by Liz Truss, who um, who proclaimed that the millennial generation were airbnb delivery eating, Uber riding, freedom fighters, and she she happened to be speaking at a sense of a policy studies event the evening. After after she made those remarks and we got a t-shirt printed up for her saying that and she, w- she was wearing it proudly around Westminster Interesting so that's almost like a, not quite a political philosophy she the, the Prime
0: Minister defined the younger generation I mean I, I imagine it applies a little more than that as people who
4: simply like to avail themselves of the services of these disruptors Yeah but two things have happened since that kind of insurgent era the first is just if things have become more establishment, more part of our, our daily lives, regulation has started to, to come in. But more than that, there's been this kind of concerted and very successful fight back, primarily on the left against this model and an attempt to conflate, kind of as Kirsty alluded to, an attempt to conflate zero hours and gig economy and self-employed and all these kind of, so it's basically to argue that workers' rights are being systematically stripped away, that more and more people are coming out of full employment and you know these people are miserable, they are being exploited and literally none of that is true. Every survey we've seen of gig economy workers for example seems to show that they are there by choice there is absolutely no evidence that we have seen a mass, like people leaving full-time employment, in fact full-time employment with all the standard protections continue to grow robustly and also you know, many of the people who are taking advantage of these freedoms, perhaps not so much on the Uber side, tend to actually be elderly people who are sort of stepping away from the workforce which just graduating, rather than going straight into retirement, were graduating towards a couple of days a week, doing some consulting and see you know just sort of drifting out of the workforce rather than having a sharp exit. But yeah, and I mean, like, you know, the, the government did its own service of this. Uber did its own service of this. Deliveroo did its service of this. Social Market Foundation did, did that with them. I know the Tony Blair Institute has has just done some stuff. Like it's it's really hard to see this kind of systematic exploitation. Happening. That doesn't mean that there's not... There hasn't been a need to sort of tidy up some of the rights. But there's been a very successful argument, and you know, especially the Labour Party under Corbyn were all over this, to just completely equate gig economy with exploitation. Kirsty, can I ask you about that? Did, did you mm. see that originally there was a problem with the gig
0: economy that needed to be solved? Because the free marketeers would say, look, this is a perfect model of laissez-faire. These guys have got an app. They can choose to take the job or not. Nobody's forcing them to do anything. So why, therefore, should the government interfere with a relationship which is working well. It was also argued that there was a minority of them who were pushing for union recognition for greater holiday pay, but they were simply a vocal minority, and the more silent ones didn't really want this. How do you see it?
3: Mm. I mean, I I think there are challenges coming out of it, and when we talk to gig workers they identify things around income volatility of course it's harder to predict your income when you're you're working in that non-traditional way around what it's like to experience management via an algorithm effectively so sometimes decisions about your participation in the app or what jobs you get allocated or your rate of pay are made automatically and that is fundamentally different to a sort of Mm. person-to-person relationship and sometimes there are concerns but much less frequently around the attendant benefits that you might not get when you're self-employed or a worker than an employee but I think Robert's right that for the most part gig workers go into these platforms with their eyes open they're very happy to embrace the trade-off between the flexibility and the control of their own time that they get by working through a platform Mm -hmm. in return for probably a much slimmer set of benefits but the point we made in our report yesterday is that part of what needs to evolve is the possibility for these workers to have a voice and be represented so that they can have a good relationship with the people that design and run platforms so that conditions can improve and so they can help to kind of get a better deal. That's also being promoted through competition of course. Now you've got Bolt on the market. There's clearly much more pressure on both Uber and Bolt to attract workers and I think that's an important kind of aspect that workers are also aware of. They, they mention multi-apping, they are happy to switch between them and they're very alert to which one is going to offer them better conditions.
4: On a moment-to-moment basis, almost. Yeah. But Andrew, the competition you spoke about earlier is not just
0: competition for um, passengers. It's competition with other apps as well. When we spoke to Casey, your driver, earlier on, she was saying how even she, the Uber poster driver, uses other apps. So they're sitting there with bolt they might have uber and they can pretty much take whatever job they want so you're having to compete for the driver's
2: time for the driver's attention in a way that you simply weren't 10 years ago absolutely absolutely on a minute by minute basis a driver receives an offer of a trip they know where it's picking up from where it's going to and exactly what they're going to get paid for that so that is the basis on which they're making the decision in the minute to to drive for uber rather than anyone else i think more broadly you know, there is competition in the medium term with some affinity towards the platform. And I suppose, you know, some of the points you were making earlier, I wonder whether what we're trying to do with some of the regulation is fix market failure. So, you know, you could argue that that actually people, whether they are employed or whether they're workers, whether they're independent contractors... You know, sub optimize with respect to their savings, you know, should be saving for a pension, but perhaps choose not to because they're trying to focus on the short term. So, I I personally think it's appropriate for there to be some intervention so that people are encouraged to make better choices. So, for me, a, a pension is quite a good example of that, where actually, you know, although a driver, like anyone else, can opt out of it, they are opted in. And I think that's kind of good for society. I think the other thing that just, you know, you you, you mentioned, Fraser, about, you know, you're chatting to Uber drivers and, Mm. and some of them had incredible stories about where they'd come from. I think there is a more general point about inclusivity in the gig economy. And it's not just about people who've come from another country, but it's, you know, age is a huge one. A lot of people are obviously having to, you know, top up their state pensions or continue working longer than perhaps they had to. And I think the gig economy provides great opportunities for young, for old, perhaps for people who don't want to come to a workplace, perhaps they, you know, they're very introverted. There, there are so many more options for people to match their personal preferences and, and situations with earning money than I think there may have been even in the recent past. But you're now offering more generous perks than you were before. But has this necessarily made it
0: easier for you to find drivers? I mean, anybody who's taken an Uber for the last four or five years will notice it's a lot harder, shall we say, post-pandemic than it was pre-pandemic to find a driver in about two or three minutes. So I'm not quite sure what happened. I did wonder... If it's the fact that because you've been, you know, you're offering more of these benefits, you can offer a lower rate of pay, and that simply isn't attractive enough. We're in, living in a country where there are something like five million people in out of work benefits. There is a huge chunk are doing, you know, no work at all. They don't seem to be tempted into the world of work. So is it it Brexit? Is it the change in your regulations? Is it what was referred to as a
2: great resignation, simply fewer people in the labour force than there were pre-pandemic? I I think it's two things. I think generally there is, you know, employment is incredibly high at the moment. So it is just difficult to find people for any industry at the moment. I think what's a little bit different to the industry that I'm in is that, you know, it's non-trivial, rightly so, to become... A driver of a private hire vehicle. You you have to have medical checks, you have to have Mm -hmm. all sorts of topographical tests. It's about a six-month journey in London minimum from start to end to become a licensed private hire vehicle driver. That was
0: true seven years ago when you had lots more drivers. There seemed to be then a far greater ratio of drivers
2: to customers than there is now. So I mean, it didn't put them off at the beginning. Why should it put them I, off now? I, I think it's two things. I think it's timing. So if you think, you know, we're, we still had the pandemic in January, February this year. So mm. it, it, we have thousands of prospective drivers who we right. know are beginning to go through that funnel. But also there is just a huge amount of competition for work of any sort at the moment, which, you know, in many respects, that's a good thing. But it's not particularly helpful to me, nor to you <laughs> as a, a rider on Uber. But Andrew, if, you're, if anybody's competing for
0: minimum wage work, I mean, we, the care homes save us, the supermarkets save us, you're going to have to pay up, aren't you?
2: If you want more drivers, I mean, teetering and wrong at the minimum wage just above it won't cut it. Absolutely. So, you know, we have had to pay up. And the drivers on average for Uber were earning in the first quarter of this year just under £30. First uh, an, an hour, hour on an average. Hour. Yes. Right. £29.72, I think, from, right. from memory. And that's increased hugely from pre-pandemic times so we are having to pay up and that's totally fair enough it just takes I think there are a couple of things I think one is one is perception so that may not be widely known and also it just does take time and effort to become a licensed private hire driver.
3: Actually one of the insights from our user research was that high income is or higher pay is one of the top reasons why people choose these jobs so clearly the vast majority of digital labour platform workers feel they are being well paid mm. and many platforms have put in place a floor voluntarily and we've recommended that all platforms should have a, a floor as a minimum income of some kind for their workers.
0: Right so you mean over and above the minimum wage? No
3: it could be the minimum wage the national minimum wage of the country. Right
0: because I think um, Andrew Uber does have a floor doesn't have a minimum wage. We do. You say yeah. if anybody for whatever reasons pay below it you top
2: it up. Absolutely. And, and we do top up about 1% of drivers for
4: whom a top-up is required. Right. So but 99% earn more than the national living wage. So I, actually, I, I just wanted to jump in on some, something Andrew pointed out, because I think what we don't quite know yet and what's going to be very interesting to find out is the impact of the pandemic. So... And obviously the cost of living crisis. I mean, uh, what we're seeing is, you know, the number of gig economy workers, the number of platform workers has has increased substantially in the last few years. Many of them are now doing that on, on top of a full-time job. But as you alluded to yourself, Fraser, we have a lot of people who are out of the workforce. You know, the unemployment rate is very low. The labour participation rate is also very low. And the question is, how can we entice them back into the workforce? And is gig work, is sort of part-time work, is is that going to be a useful route for doing that? Because it's a huge economic problem for this for this country.
0: But, but I imagine, Kirsty, if people thought you could get £25, £30 pounds an hour with a gig economy, there actually be, be, might be more interest. Perhaps there's a lagging perception of the gig economy being the same as minimum wage, no security work.
3: That's a possibility. And I think part of why the regulatory response has got to be so nuanced is that the last thing you want is to choke off this kind of innovative new source of employment that is bringing people back into the labour market who might otherwise be excluded. So while you've got to take on some of the challenges, you've got to be, I think, as a policymaker really careful about kind of squashing that in the opportunity
4: yeah traditionally the gig economy has been a place for people who can't work full-time or don't want to work full-time and I think the the flip we need to make is from seeing it as an an exit route from full employment to being an entry route to full employment Mm. for people who want it and I think that's going to be a really fascinating area or
2: just a parallel route to full employment or say being employed but part-time I mean we certainly see a a large number of drivers who do have a permanent part-time employment and they're using Uber to top up their income. And actually, obviously, with the cost of living crisis, that becomes ever more important. And a lot of the drivers are not... They don't think about, I'm going to drive for X hours. They think, I'm going to drive until I've made £40 every day. And that if that takes me an hour, if that takes me three hours or whatever, that's what they'll adjust to. But I do think this point about allowing many people to top up their income... If I think about students, they've got unparalleled opportunities to top up income in you know, in terms of you know online tuition for other people you know, or bar work. And the same with, same with, you know, elderly people. There are just more opportunities. Where I think the pandemic has had a big impact is that there are a lot of people who do not want to physically come back to a place of work or certainly not be bound to come back to a place of work. I do think that is just a, a behavioural trigger that's happened, which is like, I want to live my life as I want to live it, and I'm going to choose. And I think that has changed forever and probably for good. Kirsty, have got least trust quotes about the young generation being Uber driving, freedom fighters, etc.?
0: I wonder how it squares with the age profile of gig workers. We've noticed that after the pandemic, the biggest dropout has been the over 50s. Now that has been the big surprise, that a whole bunch of these guys simply didn't come back to the workforce and the economy is visibly slowing as a result. Are we finding older people joining the gig economy? Is it a young person's thing?
3: It's both actually. The average age of people in the what we think of as the giggers category, which is digital labour platform workers, but also people who have a gig job through a, a sort of analogue means, is the same as the traditional job sector, but it skews much more heavily to both ends. So there are far more younger sort of 16 to 24-year-olds and 54 to 60-odd-year-olds in that category than there are in the traditional bracket.
0: Andrew, do you, how do you see the next... Because Uber's still got its regulatory battles. I imagine you're always going to be the lightning rod for debates about the gig economy. Now, you've come through a lot of these. Do you anticipate more ahead? What are the controversies, do you think? Not just for Uber, but for companies like you in the next few
2: months and years. I suspect the controversies around what is the definition of being an employee versus a worker versus an, an independent contractor, I imagine on the edges of that, those controversies, or if not controversies, just sort of like regulation will need to catch up on that. And the government published guidance, very recently on some of those topics. And, you know, we're hoping there'll be an employment bill in, in order to clarify some of these things. Because the reality is, there's lots of different interpretations going on at the moment. I hope we continue to break new boundaries to to cover new ground. And so I think there will be controversy. But I think, you know, where, where we're absolutely clear is from an ethical point of view, we, you know, we do the right thing. That is utterly clear there's no ambiguity about that
3: i was just going to say that i think increasingly those old classifications of employed self-employed or worker are more and more meaningless as gig work becomes more of a widespread phenomenon in the in the economy and so it's going to be less and less relevant for us to obsess over what benefits are associated with each of those statuses and more important to look at what rights workers have across the board
0: robert how do you see this progressing do you think the trust government is going to come down on one side or the other for these freedom fighters you used to speak about
4: well, I think the, the Trust Government is instinctively a freedom fighting organisation. I think um, it'll be interesting to see what they do with the Future of Work review that Matt Warman, uh, MP, was was producing um, mm-hmm. under Boris. From memory, that's just gone in, and it'll be interesting to see what the response to it is. I mean, you, Jacob Rees Mogg does not strike me as the type of man who, who is keen on swaddling the, the economy with further <laughs> employment protections. In fact, in fact, he's often accused of wanting to strip them away, I think because a lot of people sort of confuse him with the Victorian Millhouse owner. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, I think it's going to be a fascinating. A fascinating area, and it's, it's fascinating to, with, with Uber's own, own journey from essentially a low-cost offer to a to a high standards offer. In some in some ways, Uber is now the establishment.
2: Well, I, I must say, I'd rather not see ourselves as the establishment, and I think we need to keep breaking new <laughs> ground. But your point about it's not that we want more regulation. The reality is we just want a level playing field because at the moment there isn't in some areas. But there's another government policy question I think, which is around you know cross-border and international activity. That may be less relevant for Uber specifically within a country, but my, my neighbor gets an Italian lesson every morning at five thirty a.m. from an Italian person who's in Vietnam. I mean, you know, regulation has no idea how to deal with that sort of thing at the moment. But that happens to be a win-win-win. You know, it suits the Italian in Vietnam and it suits my neighbor who's learning Italian. Italian at a time she'd like to
0: well perhaps Lestrade should add to her definition in Britain a country that gets up at 5.30am to learn Italian that's quite Yeah, well, that's, that's where we're <laughs> going well that brings us to the end of the podcast Andrew, Robert and Kirsty thanks so much for joining me on this special podcast and thanks to you for listening and thanks to Cindy Yu my producer